Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast. Today, I'm speaking with high-performance strategist, Brandon Marcello. Thanks for tuning in to the Pacey Performance Podcast. So this evening, I have the pleasure of speaking to Brandon Marcello. Uh, So welcome to the podcast, Brandon. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you, mate. So anyone that doesn't know who you are, um, I'd love for you to give us a little bit of a a background on you. And firstly, maybe chat about your uh, job title as a high-performance strategist and maybe what that means and the kind of things that you're doing at the minute. Yeah, so you know, as a high performance strategist, um, my role is to work with organizations, teams, um, companies, professional athletes, uh, and help them uh, implement uh, strategic implementation of high performance solutions. Is really the best way of putting it. So um, it's it's technique certain. It's uh, technology agnostic. So. Uh, you know, we don't really lean on anything too heavily. It depends upon the situation, depends upon the person, depends upon what they want. So um, it could be training an athlete, getting them ready for a season. It could be um, going into an organization and helping them with their nutrition, providing recovery solutions, um, just about anything on the human performance field. Nice. So how did you get there? What's your, what's your background? So my background um, was strength and conditioning. Um, did an undergraduate in, in uh, exercise science. Didn't know what that meant. Um, I just knew I was getting good grades for once. And the, uh, I went and met with the advisor. I said, so what do you do with this degree? He goes, well, you can go either cardiac rehabilitation or you can do corporate wellness. And neither of those really sounded appealing. So um, I said, well, there has to be something else. So I searched and searched and... And I came across working with athletes and training athletes, which led me to my first job at IMG Academies in Bradenton, Florida in about oh, I don't know, the mid-90s, around 96. Um, started down there, uh, trained all of the people with the, the, who were with the IMG group. Um, also trained a ton of kids from 32 different countries because it was part of the Voluntary Tennis and Sports Academy and, and did that for a few years. And then 1999... <clears throat> I left with uh, Mark Verstegen, and we went to Arizona and started uh, Athletes Performance at the time, which is now Exos, and ran the business out of his condo. We trained our athletes wherever we could train them until we had a facility built. And um, I did that for four years until I decided to go back to school and get my, my doctorate. So I went back and got my PhD in nutrition, which at the time was my um, weakest skill set that I could identify. Um, so I wanted to enhance that and, and got my degree in that. Uh, from there, I, while I was actually, while I was working on my PhD, um, I was a uh, director of performance for USA softball. So I was working with our uh, USA Olympic team, prepping them up for Beijing. And then um, 2007, once I finished my doctorate, um, I was the director of performance at Stanford University. So I oversaw every aspect of their uh, performance 
uh, side of the athletic department for seven years. And then 2014, I'm doing my own thing and having a lot of fun consulting with a number of groups, still working with athletes, um, and really getting to use a lot of my different skill sets that a typical job doesn't allow you to do. So it, it, it's been a fun journey. Nice. Now, we spoke before, and it was one thing that I didn't realize that you were involved in athletes' problems from the start. So that's cool. Uh, what, what was it like setting up that business? Uh, it was what, what kind of Go it was turn. fun. No, it was fun. It was fun. It was uh, it, challenging because um, you got two guys who don't know anything about business, right? Um, and we're you know just scrambling and trying to create something where we can have athletes come and work and, and do something completely different. And it was it was kind of looking back now, it kind of was was industry defining to some extent, um, you know. And, and everybody asks. To this day, you know, you know, can you give us advice? And do you have any advice for somebody starting their own business? And and I really don't, simply because back then in 1999, there weren't many performance places out there. Um, there was very, very much a handful of them. Now there's a, a performance center at every corner in every city, uh, which is great from an industry standpoint because it's shown how much the industry has grown and there's a lot of. Um, passion to be involved within the industry, which I think is a great thing. Um, so while it was very challenging back then, it was also very easy because we didn't have that much competition. That's interesting. So, I mean, your job title is obviously um, high-performance strategist, but, and that's obviously on the human performance side. Is there any potential for going just kind of a performance strategist and getting into business and, and analyzing the kind of things that they do? You could. Um, yeah, absolutely. There are people that actually do that and work in the business world and, and, and enhance those things. There's a group called Tignum. I don't know if you're familiar with them. Uh, Scott Pelton is their uh, CPO, Chief Performance Officer. And he goes in and helps optimize um, corporations and the people that work within the corporation. So to give them these same skill sets that we give athletes many times, the movement, mindset, recovery, nutrition, and that's what they, the, that's the Tignum pillars um, that they use to kind of uh, help people perform at their best. Because at the end of the day, whether you're an athlete, whether you're a surgeon, whether you're a, a, a board member, um, it doesn't matter what the, the profession is, you still perform and want to perform at a certain level and a certain level of performance. Yeah, absolutely. That's that's what I was thinking. Really, there's a there's something to offer the the kind of business world from your with your background. Yeah, yeah. that's cool. Yeah. So you're doing a lot with on the military side of things. Is that I, something that we can go on, mate? Sorry. Yeah, I am. Um, um, I am. I'm doing a lot with the military, and um, they they want to look outside of their traditional lens, and that's why they reached out to me. So what kind of things, I don't know how much you can say or how little you can say, but what kind of things are you doing with them guys? So yeah, there's nothing secret, right? I mean, it's not, it's not you know, uh, it's what I'm doing. I've been done a number, number of projects with them uh, to date, but just wrapped up my second project, which is um, really looking at human performance. So they want to know how to assess performance. Um, and so we look at what they need to assess, which is the soldier, and we pulled away the soldier moniker and said, well, let's just look at human performance. How can we better understand humans? What do we need to assess 
to get a better grasp of how humans perform. So within this project that lasted a year and we just wrapped it up, um, I actually turned in the final report today, this morning, um, I identified um, four domains that was already based upon military, previous military work, which is the physical domain, the cognitive domain, the social domain, and the emotional domain. And then from there, I looked at every other element that I could think of, research, find, that connected within or to those specific domains, um, such as sleep or pain or asymmetries or mobility and stability or load or crystallized intelligence, fluid intelligence, um, even how you were born, um, the type of food you eat. So all of these different things, we identified 87 elements that contribute to human performance that should be assessed. Um, now, what are we going to do with this? We, we presented uh, the framework, this ecosystem of human performance, and then the military can look at it and say, okay, here's where we should start doing some research. Here's how groups should collaborate because we didn't know that maybe sleep was an influencer of pain and pain was an influencer of sleep. So maybe researchers should kind of, kind of link up uh, depending on these different elements. And you know, if there's ways of measuring or not assessing nodes that we should assess, let's put some research dollars there so we can now assess this area which we didn't know we should be measuring. So um, it, it's, it's, we're, we're at the early part of the project, but hopefully it takes off and um, really turns into something nice years down the road. Mm -hmm. So what, obviously there's huge amounts of detail in that kind of year-long project. Mm -hmm. I'm just trying to, try to relate it to the pro potentially the guys that are listening who are in uh, professional or collegiate sport. Mm -hmm. Obviously, they don't have that time to go into them kind of details. But how, what can what can they potentially learn from that process that you went through to maybe dilute it down and actually learn from that kind of process of, of, of that detail, really? Yeah, I think it's really simple. I think it's a matter of understanding that there is really a delicate interplay within a lot of these elements that contribute to human performance. Um, and so many times we get very much caught into our world of, uh, I'm a strength coach, so I need to strengthen condition. Um, but there are a lot of other elements which can provide uh, or which can give an athlete a better opportunity of improving strength and improving conditioning and durability and resiliency and et cetera. So if we can look at this roadmap and they can say that, I had no idea that, you know, we know this now, but sleep was a big influencer on, you know, this. Okay, I need to start paying attention to sleep more. Maybe reach out to some experts there and maybe leverage some expertise so I can be, uh, uh, I can get a better result with what I do. Um, you know, it's the same thing with nutrition, uh, but it's like it's, 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 it's looking, thing, looking a little bit deeper, um, but it's really the, – the crux of it is looking at the interplay and understand that it's, it's truly a multidisciplinary approach, and if you're missing any of these disciplines, you're, 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 you're doing a disservice. Just to move on a little bit, and I think it, it probably – Nice little crossover to a previous talk that you've done, uh, I believe, for, for the Perform Better guys in the US, and that's the um, the trend and movement fundamentals. I, just, I, I saw that on your on your website, and I thought that was that would be a really interesting chat to go through and and just get your get your views on really. And would you mind just giving us a little kind of overview, and then we can dive a little bit deeper on what you on your views of the 
the movement fundamentals? Yeah, so the Movement 101 uh, talk that I gave last year was really just looking about the, the basics of uh, linear, lateral, and multidirectional speed. Um, and, and the reason why I wanted to go basic is because I see a lot of information out there, and, and as you see a lot of information out there, and then listeners do as well on the internet, which is, you know, okay, they look up linear speed development, and, and all of a sudden all of these videos come up. And one thing I do when I look at these, I see a lot of little small intricacies that are overlooked. So while the general exercise might look similar, they're missing a lot of the fundamental issues, and they're missing a lot of the um, understanding of what this drill does, why this drill is in this particular place within the particular training program. Um, so I talked about the nuances of the drills. I talked about the sequencing of drills, so why sequencing is very important uh, when you're building out a, a you know, movement development program. Um, just to give people a better understanding of why and where these types of uh, exercises came from and where they fall into the training program. So when you, when you mentioned sequencing there, you just mind giving us a little bit of a bit more detail on firstly why obviously that's such a, a crucial element and that's obviously why you give a lot of detail in your talk with regards to sequencing? So, you know, I, the best corollary I can give is, is for instance, like baking a cake. Right, there's a specific sequence that takes place. Even though everybody has the same, you know, you have batter, you have eggs, you have an oven, you have a pan and oil, and whatever the list of ingredients is. If 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 you're baking that cake and I'm baking that cake, and you follow the instructions perfectly, you know, you preheat your oven, um, you um, take your batter, you put the egg in there, you put the oil in there, you mix it the amount of the, the specified amount of time you put it in the pan and you put the pan in the oven for 35 minutes the end result is a cake right but if i used all of those same tools that you did which are the ingredients and now i've altered the sequence so i decide to just put the pan in the oven for 35 minutes pull out the pan and then pour my batter in right we've used the exact same things to bake the cake but the outcomes are drastically different because we've altered the order of events right so we've changed the sequencing and the same thing occurs within any type of training program and and in my case that I was speaking about was movement that you know movement and programming movement should follow a very specific sequence um, and the fundamentals of linear speed to put it you know very simply should be done first followed by the, the basics of lateral speed should be second and then multi-directional based upon that because all these things follow a very specific sequence. And if you haven't mastered some of those other pieces, then going beyond that is going to be very, very difficult and, and much harder to do. Mm -hmm. From the, what I see that's out there, there's a lot of emphasis on the on the linear stuff and that maybe comes from a lot of influences who are, who are um, can originate from track and field, from athletics. But what I don't see a lot of is the kind of development of the, of the lateral aspect. Do you just want to talk to us a little bit about your views on maybe starting off with the sequencing and then a bit, bit deeper in what, what kind of where people could start with moving from that linear model to the, to the lateral coaching? Sure. So when you're looking at lateral, there's two different types of lateral movement. There is like close proximity where you're just kind of uh, maybe like a basketball or um, – uh, you know, 
tennis even, very close proximity drills where you don't have to cover much ground, um, which would be very simple as just a push off, a lateral push, right, or a couple of lateral pushes. Then if you need to cover more ground, there's that transition from lateral to linear speed, which is more of a crossover step, right, or a jab step. You could use either one. So the first thing with lateral speed is to make sure you have an understanding of more like physics, right? So it's easier to push something than to pull something. So teaching the athletes the proper position to in which they can be to leverage their um, <clears throat> their body teaching them to push off of the ground on the inside ball of the foot um, really just educating them on putting their bodies in the best positions to exert force right to give them a biomechanical advantage that's really all we're doing um, and then the beautiful thing about these drills and these movement sessions is they also function as an evaluative session so if somebody doesn't move well laterally, well, let's teach them to get in that position. Well, if they cannot get in that position, well, then it tells us we need to look at something else. Maybe it's a mobility issue. Maybe it's a stability issue. Um, maybe they can't maintain that position, so now it's a capacity issue. Or maybe they don't generate enough force out of that position, so now it's a strength issue. Um, so it's, it's interesting that these things, while, while – Many times we get caught up in just teaching the drills and improving linear speed. If we forget to use those sessions as an evaluative tool, um, then we lose a lot of great insights that we otherwise would miss. So, I mean, like I said before, there's, um, there's lots out there. And the things that I, I've seen probably over the last couple of months is it's probably a, a big increase in um, – videos and and things like that on on linear speed with the the introduction of um like sprint mechanics and that type of thing but where where does where does one make that kind of where and when does one make that transition from um developing that kind of linear model to something that is more multi-directional obviously going through the lateral kind of midpoint as well are all three in there at the same time is it a clear kind of progression from one one to the next to the next? What what's your opinion on that? So I like to do them concurrently, um, but I, I do them very separate. So meaning, uh, in a, a week's time, I might do a linear speed session one day, and then the next day I might do a lateral speed session, and then I might go back to a linear, and then I'll go back to another um, lateral. So I'll alternate linear and lateral, linear and lateral, and then my progressions are all based upon mastery to the next limiting factor. So how fast an athlete progresses based upon how well they master um, the specific exercises. So can't really give you a timeline how long that takes. I mean, when we get into combine preparation, you have six weeks to get these guys or eight weeks to get these guys prepared. So you have to kind of um, push everything in within that eight-week plan, right, and, and hope that they master things and move them along quickly. But aside from that – uh, you would alternate linear, lateral, linear, lateral um, until they master those components. Then that lateral piece would be uh, replaced with multidirectional speed. Um, and then because obviously lateral is a component of multidirectional speed. Then as you bounce back and forth between linear and multidirectional, that general multidirectional speed will become more specialized, specialized to whatever that sport might be. B. Then it would get more specific after that to now what are the specific needs of that particular position within that particular sport that are built around uh, multidirectional speed. So in short, let's master linear, 
Let's master lateral. Let's alternate and show me that you can progress and have good proficiency within those. And then let's push you to the multi-directional aspect. Uh, and then let's make it as specific as we can. So at what point, I mean, I'm guessing it's the it's kind of right at the end, does that multi-directional uh, emphasis kind of come more, more chaotic and more in the actual environment that, you know, soccer player, for instance, is actually on the field with a ball or in that kind of, very specific scenarios how would you kind of make that transition so it is specific without being too specific and actually just just been a game no yeah exactly so um what you would do is once they understand the basics of a multi-directional speed session so if they're you know they've, they've they can do a drop step in a very controlled setting so let's say pre-programmed to random right pre-programmed meaning i'm going to have you shuffle over here and drop step or drop step to the right and do this so now they're being pre-programmed, and as you said, can we take them now into the chaotic environment? So if they can master the pre-programmed world, then we'll push them into the chaotic world um, where they might have to, uh, it might be still a controlled drill, but they might have to respond to something, whether it's a ball or whether it's a coach or whether it's some sort of direction where they have to now change um, and respond to a stimulus, whether it's an auditory stimulus, whether it's a visual stimulus, um, whatever it might be, then uh, you make that transition. So, yeah, once they've mastered the, the pre-programmed controlled setting, then you push them into the, the other setting. And what I find works out well is when you're working with teams is to make sure you're out there with the coach. And the coaches should have a good understanding of this as well so that when they're performing drills, you're reminding them of this movement because many times when they they might be moving well in your group, but they get out on the soccer pitch and next thing you know, they start reverting back to their own techniques. So <clears throat> if you can remind them on field in practice and, and get a session like that, uh, I've seen some great things happen in terms of retention. So you mentioned stimuluses there and, and reacting to them. Are you, are you always making sure that that stimulus is specific to what actually happens on the, on the field? Um, are you kind of rotating that or is there a continuum? Um, I kind of rotate it actually. Okay. So um, what I will do is I'll have a, a visual stimulus um, I'll have an auditory stimulus. Um, sometimes what I'll do is I'll have them, you know, even just like a basic wall drill, I'll have them close their eyes. Um, and I might, you know, snap on one side of their head or snap on the other side of their ear, you know, head so that the other ear gets it just so they can start to pick up and pay attention to different senses. Because really that's essentially what they're relying upon, right? Is if they can rely upon all of their senses, um, they're going to be in much better position because, as you know, during games, let's just take soccer, for instance, they're not only getting a vast amount of visual feedback, right? But there's also a lot of auditory feedback that they many times goes unheard, you know, whether it's a coach trying to tell them something, whether it's another player communicating with them. And that's sometimes where you see a lot of the hiccups made is because they miss some sort of stimulus, right? So if they don't pick up that person, how can we better enhance that? Um, and that ties into some technology pieces, which is cool. I know that um, when I was working with um, uh, a team a while ago, about five, five, six years ago, we started tying Google Glass. And the reason we did that is because we wanted to get a sense of where these athletes were looking. This was basketball. So it's like, you know, are these athletes looking to where the coaches think they are looking and where they need to be looking? So just give us a bit of a, um, a background on Google Glass. 
Yeah, so Google, it was technology made by Google. Uh, and essentially what you could do is you could overlay some software and it had a little camera on it. Um, and what would happen is where the athlete looked, camera would follow. So it was interesting when we laid the software and in a basketball, we had all the players wearing them. And when you look at the software, it showed through this like um, – gave a pattern like a big V where the athletes were looking so you could see their visual range. Um, and it was interesting that the reason why some of the plays weren't working well is because some of the players weren't looking at the right spot at the right time. So it gave a, some amazing insights to the coaches in terms of, man, I didn't even think to think that they might not be looking in the same the right place. I just assumed they were. So it really opened that, – that was some really interesting data which provided some huge insights to the coaching staff of, okay, I need to start putting in some information when I'm running plays of where people need to be looking and when um, because it was, it, was, it was amazing. Something I really didn't you know, think would be that powerful ended up being so. I'm guessing information like that is it's quite hard to then act upon and actually put in place like – Rather than asking a player, don't look there, look there. Mm-hmm. That's that's all right to say that now when we both stood there looking at each other. Mm-hmm. But in the chaos of a match with 30,000 people, 5,000 people watching you, that's a different story. Absolutely. So I'm guessing that's – from a, from a coach's point of view, how did they act upon that information? Well, what they did was they it was usually used in practice only because they couldn't wear okay. it in games, right? So it was – that was the interesting piece was they would look at game film and then they would say, okay, this play wasn't running very well. We, we tried to run it four times. It worked once. Let's run in practice and see what happens with different uh, groups. I, I and then yeah. what they saw was that the more successful people were looking in the right places and the ones when that wasn't very successful were not um, or were delayed in looking, right? So it was interesting for some reason. And that's, that, that leads you to the next question, right? Why weren't they looking there? Um, What was the information that they received that told them to not look there or maybe to overlook that piece of information, right? It just gets deeper and deeper, which is really cool. Um, But at the same time, it was just fascinating stuff. Just going to take a very quick break in the chat with Brandon. Hope you enjoyed part one. Just want to let you know of uh, an audio abstract that came out uh, this week from Sophia Nymphius. So Sophia is discussing uh, change direction deficit and how you can use uh, historical data to really drill down into the the nuances of um, of a 505 test. So that's really interesting. So make sure you check that out and that can be found at strengthofscience.com. So massive thanks to Valve Performance, makers of the Nordboard and Groin Bar for sponsoring the episode today. So really encourage you to check them guys out. Some great guys, guys behind the scenes, uh, as you know, uh, with the, uh, the Hamstring Research Group, um, as well as the, the guys who are, uh, who are dealing with the business day to day. So make sure you check them out. So over to part two with Brandon and hope you enjoy. So let's move on a little bit um, and something that I believe you um, you spoke on in Seattle a couple of years ago when I was out there and that was um, a, a lot around recovery and something that came into my mind, it's something that I always see if I'm going around visiting clubs is is the amount of um, kind of money and resources and time and a lot of the time is is spent on, on supplementation and supplements for whether it be pre-game, post-game, 
all over the shop. So I just wanted to ask you to give us a bit of a uh, a one hundred and one on on supplements and kind of probably probably delve into what you did in in Seattle a couple of years ago. Really, sure. So the, my take on supplements is they should function exactly what their name um, defines them to be: a supplement, something in addition to, um, not something in replacement of. And I think that's many times people get confused because they rely on supplementation too much. Um, and and um, there's an author, Michael Pollan. He, he's a food guy, writes a lot on, wrote The Botany of Desire. And uh, um, he also wrote a book called Food Rules. And in the book Food Rules, he says, be the kind of person that takes supplements but don't take supplements. Meaning, be the kind of person that you want to be so healthy that you eat the right things and would take supplements, but you realize that it's probably not your best um, answer for a lot of things, right? Now, that's just overall human health, right? That's not necessarily um, what we're talking about with athletes because there are some things that we know about supplementation that we need to um, pay attention to, especially when it comes to you know high-performing athletes, right? So... Um, you know, the big thing is, I guess from a one-on-one standpoint, uh, I, I recommend very little supplementation. Um, there are a few supplements that I do recommend. One of them is vitamin D. Um, we now, there, it seems like every week a new article comes out showing that vitamin D deficiency is linked to something, right? Um, whether it's cognitive function, whether it's physical development, whether it's immune system. I think that was a recent one, uh, was vitamin D and immunity and fighting off colds and flu. That was like two weeks ago. Um, so uh, that's one I recommend. Fish oil is another one I recommend. But, you know, again, there's, there's a gamut in terms of um, quality, right? Uh, so you want to make sure you have a high-quality um, source of fish oil um, for those omega-3s because omega-3s not only has some great um, benefits from just an infl inflammation standpoint, but it has a neuroprotective effect. It has a tissue remodeling effect. Um, so it has an arthro uh, protective effect as well. So there's really no downside to getting those omega-3s. Um, then the other supplement that I recommend, you know, is just from a post-exercise supplementation. Obviously, they need some sort of high-quality protein post-exercise. And um, typically, everybody goes toward whey, and whey is great. The best type of whey to consume, or best type of whey to consume is um, hydrolyzed whey. Now, many of these supplements have isolated whey protein, which is still fine. It doesn't make it bad because hydrolyzed is, you know, better. They, it really is a close second. But um, if somebody asked me what's the best one, it would, I would say hydrolyzed uh, whey is the best. At least that's what the research is showing right now. Looking, looking at the weather today in uh, northern England, I think vitamin D, absolutely essential. Yeah, there you go. Not, yeah. Not seeing the sun for six months at a time is uh, obviously not great. Well, but is it Sorry. What's funny is that with vitamin D is like you have to have 40% of your body exposed for 20 minutes in the sun and you have to live, well, here in the States, south of Atlanta, right? So that latitude, which I think is like 33 degrees uh, latitude or something like that. So it's crazy. Um, so most people, you know, you might even live in a, a decent type of sunny climate, but you may not be getting enough. Of course. So is there anything that you'd um, that is maybe popular out there that you would 
uh, warn, not warn people against us and not gonna, nothing's going to happen to them, but maybe a bit of a waste of money that you see is out there and popular? Oh, my gosh. I mean, you, you just... We have got... Sorry, we have... <laughs> could, long, could be a long time. No, I got, yeah, I mean, really, I start with what... what what works, right? There's only like a handful of supplements that really work. We know that protein works, right? We know that, um, you know, I don't consider water, but real food, obviously, and water are great. Um, we know that glutamine is effective. We know that creatine is effective. I and mean, if you're playing a sport, especially from a, a collision standpoint, so an abrupt deceleration sport, soccer, um, football, any of those types of things, um, you know, you're going to want to take creatine because there's a huge neuroprotective effect, and the research is pretty substantial on that. And it's amazing that most people don't prescribe that. Um, talked about the carbohydrates. Uh, you know, vitamins. Um, the jury is out there uh, a little bit on vitamins because we know that the vitamins you get from food is not the same that they make in a lab, right? Um, so we just don't really understand a lot of that. I think a vitamin here and there, maybe every other day might be fine just to fill some gaps, maybe. But just understand that there's a limitation, which is it's not the same as real food. Um, there's a lot of emphasis now put on probiotics. And people are spending tons of money on probiotics. The problem with probiotics is you don't know if those are the probiotics you need. Um, you know, Again, if, if the old saying goes in our, in our industry, right, if you're not assessing, you're guessing – you're pretty much guessing. If you haven't assessed your microbiome and you don't know where you might be deficient, um, you know, you're just guessing that, okay, these are the types of probiotics I need. It might not be at all. How would one go about getting assessed for that? Um, there's a pretty cool uh, site called the American Gut Project. And what they do is they'll send you a kit. And the kit comes in the mail, and you can either do your skin, you can do saliva, you can do fecal matter, right? Um, and then you send that in, and then they will send you your results back of what the bacteria types are and the quantity of those bacteria types within your gut. And it's pretty fascinating because, I mean, it really fills in a lot of holes for people when they look at it um, because you can see, you know, certain imbalances uh, that are almost predictable in like overweight populations or people that have trouble losing weight. Um, so it's, it's, it's really fascinating to see that, that makeup and you know, people who use heavy doses of antibiotics are also, you know, have trouble repopulating and they may repopulate different ones. So it's very insightful in terms of a dietary analysis as well um, because you can also probably would see different patterns. If you did all of your athletes, Based upon the reading patterns, you'd probably well gravitate towards specific types of um, bacterial composition. So where can you where can you actually go to get them probiotics? Are going to be specific to you? Well, if you're not you, going to pick them up from the supermarket. No, the, you know you have to go to. There's some health and here in the states. We have some health food stores that have you know medical grade probiotics. Okay. Um, and you kind of can look at there and see if that has the right amount, the number of them, and and go from there. Cool. So one thing, one last thing that I wanted to chat with you about, Nick. Again, it covered um, what you what you spoke about in Seattle, and that was sleep. Now I've had um, a, a couple of guys on who were uh, who discussed kind of a whole podcast around sleep, and I just wanted to get your kind of updated version. And I just went through your slides from uh, a couple of years ago, so we just a bit of an updated version on um, on your kind of views on sleep. And there's so much out there on sleep, and it kind of I don't know if it's sending to sleep a lot of the time. Um, 
they've been kind of quite generic and but 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 people keep putting it out which means that i'm guessing people are still reading it and still need to know about it so i just wanted to ask you to give your kind of um your views on firstly why it's important and the kind of basics to get get the right amount of sleep well, I think we know that sleep is has a huge impact on performance, and I think that's what it comes down to. Um, you know, so many times, um, uh, all the let's back up. All the research in the, in the past has been done, or years ago, was done on sleep deprivation, right? So, what happens if you don't get a lot of sleep? So they'll. Um, have you drive a car with little sleep? Have you do a math test with little sleep? We know performance goes down, but the interesting thing is what happens if we pay back our sleep debt? So sleep debt is essentially how much sleep that we owe because we don't get enough sleep. So Rob, if you need seven hours of sleep at night and you only get six, now you have one hour of sleep debt, which you need to pay back, right? That's simple, that's simple math. So we know if we pay back the sleep debt, this can have a huge impact not only on reaction time, but recovery, overall performance, and career longevity. Um, and in, in sports, reaction time is like the biggest thing, right? So it's like whether you're hitting a baseball at 90 miles an hour, whether you are reacting to a ball that has been deflected by a player on the soccer pitch, whether you are trying to pick up a receiver running across the field or find somebody open for a pass, really every sport, or just coming off the blocks out of, uh, if you're, you know, a hundred meter sprinter, um, whatever it is, you know, reaction time in these games of inches is a lot. And, and we know that reaction time actually improves if you pay back sleep debt. Um, so from a performance standpoint, that's huge. We know that from the research done on sleep in the past that, you know, in swimmers, they have a 20% increase in reaction time. Their turn time efficiency is improved. Their kick strokes are improved and their sprint speed is improved. So that tells you that they don't fatigue out as much or as quickly. Um, their strength and power benefits are, are greater. Um, and they even did that in basketball. Um, mood is enhanced. So these players and athletes like being at practice. They like competing. Um, they handle the stresses of travel much better when they're well-rested. Um, I mean, from my standpoint, there's too many good things that relate to performance um, that you'd be crazy not to pay attention to sleep. So obviously, and this is something that I've discussed quite a few times with people, um, but because could get first your views and a bit of an update on that. Um, and there's, there's so much out there with regards to people tracking it now. Maybe not, I'm not sure how much people are doing with it, obviously not on an individual basis, but what would be the, your kind of, um, kind of go-to devices, whether that's, that's a good word or people to kind of seek out when it comes to measuring sleep. So from a device standpoint, there's tons of them out there. Like you said, um, I've looked at a lot of them. Uh, actually, two years ago, I did a whole study for the military on sports analytics and what they're using to sense, understand, and portray human performance in the sports world. So I got pretty in-depth with a lot of the sleep trackers that they use here in the States. And one I found, which I like the best, is uh, called a Ready Band. It's by a company called Fatigue Science. And um, the, the reason I like them is because they stay in their lane, right? They just want to measure sleep. And they don't make extravagant claims they just tell you sleep duration and sleep quality 
So how long you slept and how many interruptions you had during the night. And what's interesting is they have a um, 93 or 94% accuracy to polysomography, which is what you would do when you go into a sleep lab, which is awesome, right? Um, to get that kind of you know, um, accuracy compared to that is absolutely unheard of, right? Um, so it's just a wrist-worn device. It doesn't have anything fancy on it. There's not even a watch on it. Um, it's just a regular sleep actigraphy monitor. And it gives you some really incredible insights in terms of, you know, the basics. Um, it doesn't tell you um, stages of sleep. And the thing you have to remember is most wrist-worn devices, the only time you know you can tell stages of sleep is if you have, if you wear, a, um, if you go for a polysomography test and they put the EEG on you, right? So that's the only way you can really determine with 100% certainty that you know what sleep you're in. If any of these wrist-worn devices that tell you stages of sleep or claim that they show you stages of sleep or, or, or telephone, iPhone apps, um, yeah, they can't. It's really just a really bad guess. So that's important to understand as well. So that, that's my go-to device. Um, there are other ones that, that throw out heart rate variability along with it. But, you know, when you're measuring heart rate at the wrist, it's not very accurate. Um, so I think that's important. People know, for instance, like the, the Apple Watch, 97% um, of the time it is accurate of plus or minus seven beats per minute. <laughs> so, yeah, that's pretty significant, right? But for consumers to be within that plus or minus seven, you know, 90-something percent of the time is adequate. But when we're wanting to really dial things in for athletes and, and find some absolute certainties, we need to actually go more, you know, uh, have to have a tighter tighter accuracy range, so to speak. So, um, so that's kind of the that, – that's the device that I like to, to – to, you know, use and recommend for teams to use. Um, the other thing I like about it is that they've, they've tied up with the military and have used one of their biomathematical algorithms. They've acquired one of those. So they can actually plan um, through this, this uh, model when you should travel and what your effectiveness might be or effectiveness equals to reaction time, really. So your this fatigue score and tell you where you're going to be at game time so they can help plan and help schedule. So to me, it's like this is a no-brainer. And then that, that biomathematical model, I think, is 94% accurate. or 90, One of them is 94, one of them is 93. Mm -hmm. can't remember which is which. So Cool. Well, I'm just, as I say every week, I'm just conscious of time. I know you're a busy guy. So I just wanted to firstly wrap up and say thanks for – Thanks for giving me time to come on. But last but not least, where can people keep up to date with what you've got going on? So you're pretty active on Twitter. You've got a website as well. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. Have both. Have both. What's your, what's your Twitter handle? You know? Twitter handle is at bmarcello13, the number 13. Cool. And the website? Website is uh, Brandon Marcello PhD, all smushed together.com. Perfect. <laughs> So can, uh, there's bios on there and obviously all your research and things on there as well, isn't there? Yeah, yeah. Happy days. Well, thank you very much for your time, mate. Really appreciate you uh, coming on for a chat. Rob, thanks for having me. I was delighted to, to get the call from you. Like I said, I've been listening for since the 
since the beginning, and um, you know, I was honored to to be asked to come on and, and provide some insight. When uh, uh, and I was glad to do it because, uh, like I said, I've gained so much from 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 you and, and everybody else you've had on the the numerous um, podcasts. So uh, I'm just happy to be part of it and honored to be a part of it. Appreciate that, man. Checks in the post. Checks in the post. <laughs> Thanks, mate. We'll uh, we'll keep in touch. Okay, man. Take Cheers, care. Mate. Thanks for tuning in to the Pacey Performance Podcast. I hope you enjoyed the chat with Brandon. Just before I let you go, I just want to say a massive thanks to Valve Performance for sponsoring the episode today and their continued support. One thing that I'd encourage you to check out is the recent audio abstract by Sophia Nymphius, who, like I said in the interlude, is discussing a paper uh, about change direction deficit. So that can be found at strengthofscience.com. So I hope to speak to you shortly and take care.